You're watching The Luke Bryan Show. Hey everyone, it's the uh, Luke Bryan Show. I'm Luke Zacharias. I'm a lawyer in Chilliwack, British Columbia. And I am Brian Vickers. I'm a lawyer in Abbotsford, British Columbia. And today we have Diane Jansen with us. Uh, Diane's a community member who I've gotten to know quite well over the last number of years. Uh, welcome, Diane. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Dan, uh, you and I got to know each other through, uh, I was the chair of the board of Chilliwack Community Services, and you were the executive director that we hired a number of years ago. And over those the years, uh, we've worked together quite a bit. And uh, so I wanted to start out a bit about uh, your background and your story and kind of where you came from. So why don't we start out with the beginnings of Diane? Sure. So, uh, yeah, I grew up in uh, Mennonite Mecca called Steinbeck, Manitoba. So... Um, I was born there in 1960, so I date myself, but um, I grew up on a farm there and then uh, went and became educated at the University of Winnipeg in uh, Winnipeg and then started to move my way west. So, um, so I want to ask yeah. you a question, though. I heard, mm -hmm. I, heard a, I heard a rumor about Steinbeck that there was more millionaires per capita in Steinbeck than anywhere in either Canada or Manitoba or something to that effect. Is, is this, in fact, the case? Or? Uh, I think it might be, actually, because there are more car dealerships per, <laughs> okay. per square meter than anywhere else. And uh, I, I believe the Steinbeck Credit Union is one of the largest credit unions in all of Canada. So... <laughs> Yeah, so they're a very entrepreneurial group of uh, people. Um, you know, my parents, for example, uh, created copper wire by fighting over a penny. So they <laughs> they always <laughs> understood the value of money. So, uh, yeah, it is quite an entrepreneurial community, that's for sure. Yeah, so that was one thing I was interested in because you are, as, as a leader of the organization, uh, Chile Community Services, you're very focused on fiscal responsibility, which was really important for the organization. You did a phenomenal job of it. So is that rooted in your upbringing in Steinbeck or with the family you came from? Or tell, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, my dad was a laborer. He wasn't a well-educated person at all, but they did extremely well. Uh, and that was by being extremely responsible with money. I think the other thing is that I, my own personal belief is money is not about money. It's about what it can do. So if you spend it well, and for example, with Chilliwack Community Services, you make sure that it gets out to children and families, then, then you've done a good job. So taking care of the money is taking care of people. So that's, I make that link um, more than anything else. So maybe before we go into all this background, which is important, and I want to make sure we go through this, I think on the background of uh, sort of the lens to look through all of this is Chilliwack Community Services. Right. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about Chilliwack Community Services and sort of the organization and what it does, and, and, then, and then we can understand more about, you know, the, the, the head that runs it. Absolutely. We, we should, Dan just recently left to go to another job with uh, all our blessing, and we're very happy for her. But yeah, it's just to clarify that point. Yeah, so Chilliwack Community mm -hmm. Services is one of the longest standing social service agencies in British Columbia. So it's, it goes back to 1928, and actually the original pictures are Chilliwack Community Services when the streets were dirt. So uh, it was begun by a very passionate group of women who were interested in uh, working on the issues of poverty and, of course, going into the Depression. That was a really amazing thing. But it has developed over the last 90 years as 
as a leading social service agency that does everything from working for children to seniors to families, um, housing. So everybody will note, of course, at downtown, uh, CCS is now just finishing the Paramount project, and that is going to be an amazing facility that will probably house about 100 individuals, most seniors, but also some younger people as well. So uh, they have around, uh, I think it's 107 staff and about 30 programs. So um, everything from uh, child-based uh, programs, parenting-based programs, to youth support, to senior support, uh, it's a, a, the largest agency, social service agency. And the other thing that I think I was always very proud of is how that agency partners with other agencies to get things done. So, um, yeah, I did focus a lot on fiscal responsibility, but the bottom line is um, they serve 12,000 people a year. So um, more than one out of every 10 people in Chilliwack gets help from Chilliwack Community Services. So uh, if you're, for example, you're an immigrant coming here and you want uh, to learn English, uh, CCS is the place to go. If you uh, if if you're a young person and you want support, that's the place to go. So um, I think it's just an amazing organization that goes back many many years, and the board is uh, both passionate and extremely professional. So one of the things I noticed was Luke excluded, obviously. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Apart from me, the chair. <laughs> well, who uh, again? What charge. I benefited from was an incredibly collaborative relationship with the board and a board that was very skilled. So there were areas, for example, that I didn't have expertise in, but I could reach out uh, to Kareen on governance. I could reach out to Luke on legal. I could reach out to others on finance. So there, it was. it's a very skilled board, uh, and it's been a very stable board for many years. So um, when you get that, um, what I call a sweet spot of... Uh, executive director and board with staff, uh, then you re can, can really get things done. And that's what I found happened at CCS. So uh, now that we have sort of that lens, I mean, bring you back to Steinbeck. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the other part of, so I, I found you working with you to be quite a unique person in the social service space because often you get people that are uh, one or two things, either they're fiscally responsible and they're focused on the, the finance side or they're, they're people with big hearts that want to help and, and don't have that fiscal side. And, and so you, I found you to have both. You have this real passion for helping people and people that are less vulnerable, but you're also really understood the fiscal responsibility. So you talked a bit about where the fiscal responsibility came from. Where did this passion to help people come from? Where did that come from? Like, is that from your childhood or what do you attribute that to? Yeah, I think, you know, my parents were great egalitarians and I didn't recognize it at the time. Um, but I, th I came from definitely from a Christian Mennonite perspective. I think that was the base. And the base was uh, you're in this world to make a difference. Uh, and uh, from that was from a Christian perspective that uh, when you see someone who is less fortunate than you, then you help, uh, period. So, um, you know, I attended a First Nations event uh, a number of uh, years ago, and, and the philosophy of the person speaking there, I think, represents what I feel. Uh, she said, when one uh, person falls down, we all fall down, and when one person is raised, we're all raised up. So I think that community responsibility really came from my parents, mm -hmm. uh, and it came, did come from a faith base, but it has expanded more into the secular world as well. Um, and that's where uh, I just feel in myself uh, are uh, what I 
a joyous responsibility to make the community better, to help others. And I get a sense of a personal meaning uh, that, to me, you know, you got one go around in life uh, that you know about, and uh, you should make it count. So that's kind of where I come from. Well, you certainly do that. The, the other the other piece, though, is certainly your work ethic. Now, you work extremely hard. Is that also, I mean, I come from Mennonite background in southern Manitoba, too, so I totally get that. But it's, uh, but yeah, it's that hard work piece, and you work extremely hard. Tell me a bit, was that something your parents uh put into you or, or what was the where did that value come from yeah you know i would say relentless like yeah, yeah. and not just my family uh but i would say my extended family they were all like that and i think that whole steinbeck area was actually like that um you know my mom came to uh british columbia to help me out when we were having our 25th wedding anniversary and she was working we had a bunch of roofers on so she was 80 at the time or whatever and we had a bunch of roofers and they said who is that person <laughs> she was just like absolutely relentless yeah. but again just getting getting joy from getting things done and i mean you guys would know what it means because that's what setting up a business you need that relentless kind of work. Yeah. Uh, but it, if it doesn't give you joy, I, I also don't believe in doing things that don't bring you joy. So I've been extremely privileged to be able to work hard at things I just love. And then therefore, I don't even think it's work. Yeah. So I may never retire, I, I figure. <laughs> I suspect you will never retire. <laughs> so you'll love what you do, you never work a day in your life, right? That's right. That's right. Exactly. Uh, you, you talk about community and certainly this community, and you're a huge leader in this community. Where did your ties to this community come from? I mean, you grew up in the Steinbeck. How, how, how did we get to Chilliwack? Right. So... Uh, I met my husband, Doug, who's actually from Yarrow, uh, and uh, we met at the Mennonite Brethren Bible College in Winnipeg, which was then affiliated with the University of Winnipeg. So we met there, and, uh, you know, they, they always made jokes about, well, you go to a place like that, you don't get your BA, you get your MRS. But So I did get my MRS there, <laughs> I guess. Bridal which, college, I've heard That's of right, which really... Bothered me yeah. because I was fundamentally, uh, uh, I said, I don't need men. I, I don't need to get married. I'm not going there for that reason. And then that landed up happening to yeah. me anyway. So, <laughs> so there you go. That's, so, that's yeah. right. So we met there and we, uh, we lived there for 10 years. And then uh, we were both transferred to Alberta, him with farm credit and, and me with the federal government. And then Doug was transferred again to the Abbotsford farm credit office. And so we landed up uh, uh, we actually now live on the Johnson land, which goes back to uh, the 1930s. Wow. So, yeah, so we made our way west. Yeah. So one of the other passions you've had, and we've touched on a number, but is, is the passions for um, helping First Nations, uh, Indigenous peoples. That right. seems to be a real passion for you. And the job you've moved to presently and a job you had previously at Seabird Island, you, you at least those two jobs. Talk to me a bit about how that passion developed and, 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 and you know, how, where, how you've uh, moved through that. Absolutely. So, um, you know, obviously growing up in Steinbeck was mostly like the phone book was Rhymers, Jansons, Lowens. It yeah, was, yeah. Uh, but I had uh, a couple of extremely good friends, First Nations friends in high school. Um, and um, I think when I think about it, because I now have, I'm privileged to be the chief administrative officer of Squaw First Nation, uh, and I did uh, a bunch of work with uh, Seward Island Band as well as the Northern Shusop Tribal Council. 
I think it comes from this value of equity. So uh, it is, everybody knows that the history and the treatment of First Nations in, in Canada uh, was disgraceful. Um, so I feel, I feel that pull towards reconciliation and not reconciliation just with words. And, you know, I hear a lot of, you know, it's Lots fine to do, you know, ancestral acknowledgement. That's fine. But I, I don't think that that's the ticket. I think where it needs to go is practical uh, work that results in better outcomes led by First Nations people. So uh, I'm chief and counsel at Squaw First Nation is an amazing group of people and they are committed to every aspect, economic development, uh, lands, uh, getting their own land code, social development, em employment. So I find that work again, you know, on the meaningful scale, just, you know, right off the Richter scale in terms of uh, making changes in people's lives. Um, when I worked at Seabird Island, there was, uh, we had, we were working on adult graduation and they hadn't had that many adult graduate graduates and then we set up a program, uh, me and a bunch of staff. And at one point we had 170 graduates. And so I remember, I am a spiritual person more than probably a religious person, but we had the graduation and uh, we went into the gym and everybody started crying and you knew what it was about. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't about necessarily even that day or those uh, gra that graduation, but the experiences of those individuals getting to their adult dogwood. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I went outside and there was this huge rainbow just right by Cham Mountain. Yeah. And it was extremely, uh, I don't know, I just, it was extremely powerful. So you know, you you work to change a person's life one person at a time. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't believe in entitlement. That's the other thing that I grew up with. Yeah. I do believe in empowerment, though, yeah. and that everybody has something to give. Everybody's really good at something. Mm -hmm. But people are barriered. Like, yeah. if you look at discrimination, whether it's uh, based on sexual orientation or race or religion, you limit people by that barrier. When you take those barriers out and you just accept people for who they are, then you, um, then you can help them find their own passion. And that's really what revs me up, I, I would I say. I can tell. I love yeah. it. Preach, mm -hmm. preach it to the choir. Absolutely. <laughs> and, I mean, the First Nations community is uh, something that I think recently has been talked about more uh, as, as it should be, but I think historically hasn't been talked about. I, I yesterday was at a call ceremony for some lawyers and uh, the uh, gentleman speaking, uh, Chris McPherson, was talking about, um, he, he said a statistic that just absolutely baffled me. He said more than 50% of all children in the system are First Nations. Correct. That's insane. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. And I obviously didn't fact check it, but it, I mean, it, it resounded as true. And I mean, maybe if you can expand on that or talk about that, that just how that needs to change. Yeah, I mean, I think what we need to do is look at things historically. So in the Canadian context, there was a, a policy decision made to eradicate First Nations that, uh, you know, the expression, take the Indian out of the child, was actually adopted as a, as a policy with respect to residential schools. So, 
basically what happened at that time, and it's well known, is that families were destroyed. So when they were sent to residential schools, they often didn't return home. And the things that happened to them there were terrible. So if you take, uh, the way I look at it, if you want to destroy anybody, it doesn't matter who it is, destroy the family first. Uh, and so you can't recreate strong families after seven generations of that. And I look back to the Mennonites, for example, they went through a terrible time in Russia. Mm -hmm. But that was between, say, uh, 1915 and 1920, 22, that kind of thing. This was seven generations. So the law school is actually only closed in the 90s. So it went on for more than 150 years. So uh, that took its toll. So when you then don't have modeling, because I think you learn parenting from your parents, um, you're starting... You're, you're starting sort of fresh. And so I think what has ended up happening is that the, the high levels of kids in care are coming from that historical experience, that colonization experience, and now we're starting again. What I do want to say and what I see in working with Squaw First Nation is uh, we're moving in the right direction. They are working, I think, the connection to language and culture uh, and bringing back uh, the family roots, uh, I think, is going to be, be the beginning of something great. So, for example, at um, Squaw First Nation, we've established a position called the family representative. And that person works with uh, families uh, who are in care. Uh, and the objective is to reunite families and to create uh, a situation where families can move forward together and where kids can move back with their parents. Um, this is going to take some time, but language and culture, um, skills, better housing, uh, educational opportunities, it's all, it all goes back to the family and, and to recreating that family unit. Well, that's, that's, that's an excellent philosophy, and that's, I'm so happy to hear there's some optimism on your part that things are moving in a better direction. Yep. Obviously, there's been a lot of challenges here. Mm -hmm. So one of the, one, I'm, I'm thinking as I'm interviewing you, like you do have so many passions. So I'm, I'm like the passion for politics. That's, that's the other one we haven't even touched yet. So where, where did that arise from? Is that from your parents too, or is that something that developed later in life or in university? Where, where did that come from? Uh, so I have quite a few relatives on the Gertrude inside who uh, were mayors and reeves and were really involved in political life so it, it kind of came from again from a family kind of thing I, I mean I guess um, you know you know a lot of people say well people enter politics because of power or uh, but that's never how I looked at it I thought um, I really enjoyed the role on school board and city council because you get to impact at a more macro level. So, you know, in at the school board, uh, you get the opportunity to impact the education of 14,000 students every year. Mm -hmm. That's quite something. Um, or you get to, for example, I had the social portfolio in the city. Um, I got to set up a number of uh, social-related enterprises uh, in the city to help with the area of addiction, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, 
so I was, it, it again came from childhood. I mean, you, you know, you don't think about it when you're a kid, how all these people around you are impacting you, yeah. but that's kind of where it came from. And, um, I never really liked the, I wouldn't say I'm really, uh, uh, into the public side of it. I'm probably more of a policy wonk. Uh, but to me, it's the practical outcome of, of the work that you're doing and the impact that you can have when you're in political life. Uh, some people, I think, in political life forget that. Um, but I do think the vast majority of people that I've met in political life of any political stripe are in Canada are there for the right reason. That's, mm -hmm. that's what I've found. So you were a school trustee and also a city councillor. Yes. And have run for MLA and MP, I believe. Yes. So, yep. And I helped you on one of the, those right. runs. So that, talk to, you mentioned briefly your experience as a school trustee and also as a councillor. Tell us a bit more about that, that experience and even running and all those, like, do you enjoy that process? How do you find it? Well, I mean, I think I might be a bit of an adrenaline junkie. So, to be to be honest, uh, I I like challenges. Um, you love challenges. Yes, uh, and uh, <laughs> even if sometimes they don't necessarily work out. Fair enough. <laughs> but. Uh, um, Probably what I liked the most was uh, things like going door to door. Mm -hmm. uh, I know most people, some people hate that, but I, I think then you find out what really matters to people yeah. and and what their lives are like and what what they really need and and if you're privileged to get in, uh, then then what do you uh, what's important to you? So I try and I always try to. Um, to reflect the values of the community when I was in the position. So just a couple of examples. Uh, yeah, fiscal responsibility. I was always wanted to make sure that we weren't having higher taxation than what we needed. Um, and I thought that was a community value. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's something that I did, re did reflect. Um, you know, we when I was on the school board, we looked to establish a number of choice schools. And that was related to the issue that people wanted to have more choice, uh, traditional school, art school, um, those kind of different kind of choices. So um, that's kind of where I, um, where I, where I came from. Um, you know, uh, winning's more fun than losing. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But you do learn a few things along the way. And I also believe in graciousness that uh, when you go through that process, we fundamentally have a good system. Mm -hmm. We do. Um, and uh, I think I'm very committed to democracy and to that when somebody wins fair and square, you're a good sportsman about it and you, uh, you know, and, and then you support. So, for example, you know, um, Dan Coulter is our local representative. I'm not an NDP, but you know what? I will always support Dan Coulter in his role uh, for in working for the community and mm -hmm. because that's what it's about. It's not it's not about the tag. It's about what gets done for people, in my opinion. So, so you touched on a topic there, and this this is a broader topic, but it, well, it's an interesting one to me, your belief in democracy. And, and, you know, you see politically, you know, in the United States and in Canada, there's, well, a lot in the United States, a lot of polarization on politics. And yeah. and one of the things I've always really enjoyed about you is just your willingness to talk to anyone. And, and you know, they have a different perspective. Uh, happy to chat about it. Talk, talk a bit about that philosophy and your thoughts on politics generally in that sense. And, you know, because you can get to a point where people are just yelling at each other. There's no yeah. valid, there's no real discourse yeah. occurring anymore, right, in that scenario. Whereas, in my view, a good political system, we're actually having real discourse. We're actually talking about ideas with each other and hopefully getting 
getting to a better place as a society yeah. through that process. But but tell me your thoughts on that that aspect of things. Yeah, I think that what uh, at every level, so you see it, you see it in the states, you see it even uh, you see it in local governments, uh, and there have been you know there have been uh, local examples and examples around here, and they're disturbing in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, when uh, when you head towards gaslighting or virtue signaling or any of that stuff, to me that means you're no longer open. Uh, and it doesn't matter uh, if you're far right, far left. It doesn't matter at all. Um, I had an experience on the school board. So there was a school trustee uh, who served with me, and I used to jokingly call him my favorite communist. And uh, and then he would call me, you know, I'm, he was my favorite ultra right winger. <laughs> I don't think I'm that right wing, but. Um, the thing I loved about him um, and at that time on the school board was you could have a difference of opinion. So you could be hard on the problem but easy on the person. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think things have gone really awry. Uh, I think we have gone... Uh, I worry about democracy because I feel uh, people are... Um, they are judged. They are marked. Uh, and then you see in meetings that nobody listens anymore and people are uh, called names. Uh, and I think it's extremely uh, disturbing. So I do feel there's a responsibility uh, on behalf of all leaders. So, for example, uh, because I was chair of the school board for three years, you have a personal responsibility and a legislative responsibility to set the culture for the organization. So if what you're saying um, as chair of the school board is it's okay to behave in those ways, uh, then you're not doing your job. The point you just touched on, I'd like to jump to, is culture. Culture yeah. is something like so. Brian and I, that's a big thing in our organization, and like our goal, stated goals, we want to have the best law culture in Canada, and that's yes. really what we're focused on. Yeah. And and so culture, and, and I've learned things from you in terms of culture with working with you, but like. I saw what you did when you stepped into the role of executive director at Chilliwack Community Services, and you changed the culture substantially. And, th- and that can be a very difficult process mm-hmm. with an established organization. It's a bit different with Brian and I because we're starting something from scratch, yeah, right? So right. we get to set it. But to walk me through that process. That was a very challenging process, and, and you navigated it really well. But, but walk me through your view on culture and how you change a culture because that, that's a really significant challenge. Yeah, I think there are... Basically, I think there are two aspects. There's the people aspect, uh, and then there's what I would call the systems aspect. So, um, and this is where uh, leadership gets really tricky. So I've said to many people who have applied for leadership roles, that adage, it's lonely at the top, mm-hmm. is 100% true. Uh, and you have, to, you have to make a decision, uh, for example, uh, you know, what kind of culture do you want? Uh, what does it look like in terms of fiscal responsibility? What does it look like in terms of how people treat each other? So there's a lot of uh, focus these days on, for example, uh, harassment and bullying. And it's actually now, of course, under WorkSafe BC. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, I think it's not unlike how you raise your family, which is um, you, you set about to... Um, establish a respectful culture, uh, one that's open. So what I tried to do at Chilliwack Community Services, particularly with my management team, was there's no topic that's um, not acceptable. 
So what we need to do is get everything on the table, and then we need to take it apart. What is the problem? Uh, and, and then work on it. So, um, you know, for example, one of the things that I find really interesting is the difference between individual interests and the better good of the organization. That's, the, that's one of the biggest things that I had to deal with. Um, and I think what you need to do, and sometimes you do it at 1 o'clock in the morning when you're stewing about things, is what is the best thing for the organization and how structurally do I need to do that? So I might have to change policies. I'm going to have to have some conversations mm-hmm. with people. Uh, one of the things that's re- that is really hard, and I'm sure you've experienced, is you absolutely need to recruit the right people, and those people have to share those organizational values. Absolutely. And sometimes people have to go when they don't hit that mark. Yeah, so walk, sorry, go ahead. I was, I was going to say something you said uh, in your answer there, just, just the framework, the backdrop of your whole philosophy of culture was you treat culture the same way you would treat raising a family. That's that's incredible. That's quite powerful. And I think when you start from that premise, you can't go anywhere but up. And I think that's something that Luke and I have really tried to emulate <laughs> is is this family aspect. And, and yeah, it, it's quite powerful for, for culture. Um, I don't know. Maybe, Luke, you can expand on that a bit. Yeah, I think that this comes to the question, next question I was going to ask. And this is the hard, can be the hard part of culture. And you were just touching on it when some people have to go. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, obviously in our culture, the care is our number one value. So, but still sometimes people have to go because they don't fit that. But it also yeah. is hard when you're saying, hey, we were, and you were the same at community services, really want to take care of people. Yeah. This person might not be a fit with the organizational mm-hmm. values. So walk me, and that's a really difficult process because people's feelings can get really hurt. It can upset the rest of the culture if people have yeah. to leave. There's a lot of minefields in this. And how, how did you navigate those? Well, I think where I started off is, number one, uh, respect for every person. And you start by having a conversation with the person that you're having a problem with. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe there's something behind it that you're not seeing. Maybe there's an easy fix somewhere. Um, Maybe something happened to them in the organization that you're not aware of uh, that you need to deal with. Um, And so, and I mean, this is reflected in the policies there, which is like a progressive discipline system. But um, the other thing, and it sounds cold, but it you need, um, and the advice I gave to the new executive director is, uh, what's your policy? Mm-hmm. And policy isn't just, policy is how it is you govern yourself to be responsible and to establish that good culture. So go back. Go back to that, uh, and then and then go from there. But if, for example, there's no improvement in performance, and you've been clear about what it is, and you've documented it, um, and you move along, and you're not getting anywhere, so um, I, I do think there's you have to give things a little bit of a time, a bit of time. But if it comes to a point where it is clearly not a fit. Things are happening. The work isn't getting done because sometimes, uh, like for example, with Chilliwack Community Services, we're not there for ourselves. We're there for the 12,000 people. Mm-hmm. That's why we're there. Yeah. Uh, and if that work isn't getting done, or if there's one of the things that I find about culture is it goes both ways. Really positive people will have an incredibly positive impact on the culture. Negative people who are not doing their job 
can sometimes be extremely cancerous. Mm -hmm. And they can draw other people into a sphere of negativity, and it can have an impact on the overall organization. So the other thing I tried to remember is when you're working with an individual, it's not just about that individual. It's about the 107 other people that you're working with and the kind of environment that they have. There's also... Uh, People will pick up on um, unf a lack of fairness. You know, they they can sense. You know, like if you as a leader say one thing and you do another, uh, or you won't handle tough situations, then they don't have confidence, and it begins to drive down the culture of the organization. So, um, I mean, the other thing, and this is where you know, this is where you are at one o'clock in the morning. Uh, sometimes when you do tough things like letting somebody go, you can't explain to anybody why you did that. Yeah, it's privacy. It's a it's private. It's a personnel matter. Um, yeah. But you know where I've and this is where I've advised a few people wanting to move into leadership. If you don't want that responsibility, then don't get that job. Right. Just don't do it. But I mean, as as a leader and as a strong leader, you talk about policies. So I mean, one of the policies we have is we we have a three strike policy, and so yeah. we essentially, I mean, I'm a baseball player, so I don't know whether that's where it came from or whatever. But but the even though we may not be able to tell the organization or people in the organization why somebody was let go, one thing they do know is that they got a fair shake and they had three strikes, and we went to them and said, hey, is there something else going on here that we can help fix or solve? Right. And you know, we have we have. You know, some employees that have hit two strikes and, you know, they've been with us for two years since then, you know, and, and turn things around. And it's right. not, it's, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a progressive, you get one strike, we're moving you to three strikes. It's, it's very much a process. And, and I think that commitment to culture and policy, even if you can't explain things, builds some faith in you as a leader. Is that, uh, is that fair? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I think the, con the number one, the systems, and number two, the confidence in the systems, because one of the things that I've found, and people will sometimes say, well, it's a union environment, and therefore it's so much tougher. I actually don't believe that. I believe that sometimes we have a lot in our leadership overall, we have a lack of uh, building of capacity of leaders to deal effectively with HR situations. I think it's one of the greatest areas of developmental need because it's the toughest. You are, you're having tough conversations. You're dealing with people's livelihoods. You're dealing with the impact on the rest of the culture. Uh, and I know even at CCS, you know, I would think to myself, well, what is working with this person going to have an impact on the rest of everybody else? And I'm also worried about those people, right? Mm -hmm. So I absolutely what you're saying, um, giving people a chance, absolutely, a few chances, right? Um, but being clear about what the expectation is, and that has to be done in writing. It's um, old so. you know, one bad apple spoils the bunch. And so it's yeah. important mm -hmm. as well, like you said, to protect the, the other, you know, 100 plus people uh, and not necessarily just protecting the one person. It's important to identify those things and those are um, it's it's a tough tough line to walk yeah abs absolutely and um you know i i could say there were countless examples of where people were just having a tough personal time mm -hmm. and then you can help them during that time and cut them some slack and, yep. and work around that yep. uh, but there is a point there there's a tipping point where uh, things have to get done and uh, and then of course you're you want to make sure you're professional and you want to make sure that 
uh, things are done properly. How, how tough is it putting the organization above the individual? I mean, for somebody that cares as much as you do about every single person, I mean, uh, you know, but at the same time you have a job to do. I mean, how, how tough is that? Uh, I would say the toughest part of the job. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you wanted to put me in my happy place, just give me a couple of Excel sheets and I, I can work through financial problems. But I always found human resource issues to be the hardest issues to deal with. Uh, absolutely. And I, I mean, different people handle things differently. I have this sort of um, tornado kind of decision-making approach where I just start off with all these thoughts in my head and then I... I look at every, every aspect and I kind of n bring it down to a nub of an idea. Um, and I think you have to you have to sit down and you have to think very carefully about all the aspects and then you have to take your policies and you have to make your decisions. But absolutely the hardest part of the job, in, in any job I've actually been in, um, I think um, I haven't had to let go that, of that many people, but that is absolutely the worst part of a leadership job, in my, in my opinion. That was my experience. Yeah. I, love, I do love the way you framed it, though, because like in terms of, you know, we share this compassion for people, right? But it's not just the person who's, who's in, having challenges at work. It's everyone else in the organization. Mm -hmm. It's all the clients that are being needs, whose needs are being served. And if ultimately a cancer grows too big, you're going to hurt other good people in the organization and yep. you're not going to be able to serve the people you're trying to serve and so essentially you're hurting a lot of other people and and that thinking about it in that way has helped me frame these types of things mm. in my own head a lot better yeah. so that we really are caring for the organization by doing this even though it's hard to do mm -hmm. um one of the uh which may tell a couple stories about uh, working on CCS together. So I, I, I've got a good Diane story. Yeah. So at the beginning <laughs> oh, of the organization, oh, oh. <laughs> you're on the hot seat now. <laughs> at the beginning, Diane made a lot of changes in the organization and, and every board meeting she'd come and she'd said, I turned over a new rock. I found a new bunch of bugs or slugs or snakes or whatever it was. And we kept saying, Diane, is this the last one? And she kept saying, yes. And the next board meeting, she's like, I got bad news. <laughs> There's another one. <laughs> <laughs> and it went and it went and then it ended and then you were like I'm done here and I, <laughs> one thing I, I love about you is you just love big challenges and and you did such an amazing job of turning that organization around especially fiscally where we were having some real struggles but also on the personnel side and a lot of the the, the where the organization is now bears your mark in terms of the people the new executive director people you've mentored and trained and so so the, yeah I mean I I mean I I loved working with you and I think you just did an incredible job as, as the executive executive director but that those were so, one of the stories I really enjoyed about uh, working with you and, and but it, it was your relentless drive to to get it right and that's what that reflected even though it was tough and even though you kept saying there was no more you're hoping I think we are all hoping there was no more but I've learned uh, never promised those things because yeah. it might actually be an ongoing thing that you should just commit yourself to as a leader is yeah. that there's always stuff, right? Yeah, there's another rock. There's always an, another rock or another circumstance or, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? Yeah. Any stories from your end from your time at CCS or working with the board that you know stand out to you? Yeah, you know, I... I think I have to go back to the clients. So um, we set up a program with uh, Sardis Secondary School called the Business uh, Business Administration Program. And it was funded by the province and it was for individuals who were uh, impacted by abuse. Um, and so uh, what 
what we got as individuals in that program were, were individuals who had grown up with abuse, many um, who had experienced addiction. And, uh, you know, one lady came in and she's now working, uh, she's now, now working and taking care of her kids. And she just said, uh, it changed my life. Um, she said, I grew up in a situation of sexual abuse, and I did a lot of self-harm, and a lot, and I was, had experienced a lot of addiction. But she said, you know, even when I was in school, I was good at math. And I knew I wanted to do this kind of thing. And, uh, and the teacher, and I'll just mention his name because he's such an extraordinary person, that's artist, Darren Watt. Um, he has both a counseling background as well as a teaching background. And so he would be working with individuals who on, yes, there's the academic part, there's the sage accounting, there's the marketing, there's all that, but then there's the care for the person. And so when somebody says to me, um, that changed my life, that gave me an opportunity, um, and I took the opportunity, and it's not an entitlement model, it's an empowerment model. Mm -hmm. I was good at math, stuff happened to me, mm -hmm. that wasn't fair, uh, but here I am, and I'm now come out of the other side. So to me, uh, and we can say that about 12,000 people every year. So um, the staff at Chilliwack Community Services are to be thanked because we have, have had many staff over there working for more than 20 years uh, and because they care and, uh, and, they, and they work hard. So, but that's just one story. And I mean, I, I sat there and I just, uh, you know, I was thought that's why I'm here. That's an amazing story. Yeah. One, one term I just wanted to pick up on that you've used now a couple times and I really like is entitlement versus empowerment. Why, why don't you tell us a bit about where that, that, those ideas came from and, and maybe flesh out a bit more what you mean by that? Because I think that it's a very it's a very important cultural conversation that we're having right now yeah. overall in all whole bunch mm -hmm. of aspects of culture. And I, and I, I think having clear thoughts about this is quite important, but tell me about the genesis of that from your, from your perspective and, and how those ideas developed and, and also the implementation of them. You described, I guess, one aspect or one example of implementation, but to, yeah, walk us a bit more through that. Yeah, I mean, I would say that I'm uh, one thing, and I may date myself, but I am concerned that our society is moving in the entitlement direction mm -hmm. rather than the empowerment uh, direction. And I feel entitlement is a negative. I believe it robs people of their independence. I believe it doesn't give them an opportunity for them to find out what their own passion is, to make their own contributions, and to take care of themselves. And the bottom line, and I know it's not politically savvy these days, um, I, I do, and this probably goes back to the whole work ethic thing, but if you can work, you should work. Mm -hmm. And you, you should get the opportunity to deal with the barriers, whatever those barriers are, yeah. um, to find what you're good at. Mm -hmm. um, because I believe on the empowerment end is um, everybody wants, they, they want to do well for themselves. They want to make a contribution. They want to take care of their families. I, I really don't see that many people in society who don't want to, to do all those things. So I, I actually despise entitlement. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, and I'll, I'll, like I am, I, I can't stand it because I feel it also robs general society of the benefit of that person's work. Mm -hmm. uh, and one thing we don't talk about at a macro level, but 
probably something that politicians don't want to talk about is the dropping productivity in Canada. Mm -hmm. So if you look at our our overall productivity, our GDP productivity with comparison to other countries, we're dropping. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's, you know, that's not good. We're dropping in science and research. Uh, you know, our math scores are dropping internationally. These are not things, they, these are, you know, and this is too much, I mean, don't get me going on the school system, but, um, you know, we, we need to have uh, strong standards. We need to have high expectations uh, for everybody. I mean, it's like, again, raising kids. If you set the bar here, um, they're not, you know, then they're going to stay they're going to say at a low level, set the bar high and help people to get over it. Now, now you've got something. So that, um, how you get there, um, I think you remove the barriers, you remove discrimination, you remove um, uh, abuse, you remove family circumstances, you remove everything that gets in the way of that person accomplishing something. And then you set up, for example, an education programs that not only of the academic side, but they may have the therapeutic side, the counseling side, the food security side, the housing side, mm -hmm. because a person is a whole person, right? Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, uh, and you walk them through, uh, and and sometimes uh, individuals as well as groups of people. We've talked about uh, there's so much healing that needs to happen from what happened to people, uh, and I where I come from is. You know, um, is kids mm. taking care of kids mm. um, because they ultimately have nobody standing up for them uh, except for adults who care. And in some circumstances, um, boy, do they need those adults who care. Yeah. A lot of our policies right now are very top down approach. And I, yeah. I agree with you. I, I think the, the answer is certainly uh, start with the kids, uh, bottom down or bottom up approach uh, is definitely where we need to be going with a lot of things. And there's there's been some movements in that direction, and I think that they're great. Mm -hmm. But I, there needs to be a whole lot more of that, certainly. And I I mean, we talked earlier about the First Nations community, but I mean that that's a perfect example as well. But uh, one of the organizations I'm involved in is Big Brothers and Big Sisters. And oh, it's, amazing. Um, yeah. It, 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 all the organizations actually that I'm involved with are, are trying to get back to, to kids and children and give them opportunities and experiences for all the reasons that you've just spoken about. But I, yeah, it's truly a refreshing perspective hearing hearing from you, Diane, and, and this is absolutely remarkable. And, and yeah, it's been it's been a wonderful, wonderful hour speaking Oh, I, I have a couple more questions. Oh, all right, okay. go on. Okay. We, I, I, well, one is you touched food security, so I wanted to touch about that. And, and then also uh, being, a, being a strong female leader, uh, that's a big topic, uh, you know, politically right now, and, and your perspective on how that's been for that's you. That's the refreshing perspective. It's <laughs> amazing. Yeah, no, how, how, maybe start with that one, and maybe we can talk about food security. That's a passion you and I both share yeah. in the Starfish program and all right. those things. So, but I, pick the topic you want to start with and go for it. Uh, okay, women in leadership. Um, you know, again, I mean, I probably grew up in the most conservative community in the entire country. Mm -hmm. So, but, um, you know, my dad never said, uh, you're a girl and therefore you should sit in the corner with your pink dress and do whatever. Here's a role for you. Here isn't a role for you. So the big thing on the farm was if um, uh, if harvesting needs to get done, we're all doing it. Mm -hmm. If we need to ship pigs to market, you're in there. 
and it doesn't matter if you're like this or you're tall, you're, you're doing the work. The big thing was, if you're a human being and you have a heartbeat, uh, you have a responsibility and, and here's this opportunity to do some joyous work. Yeah. So I also had so can a- you describe hauling pigs to market joyous work? Well, okay, maybe not there. Okay. I fed someone. Okay. <laughs> Food security. Yeah, that is joyous work. I agree with that. Sorry for interrupting. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, uh, and this goes back to one of my passions, with, which is education. So, you know, I think I had an excellent K-12 education, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had a, a guidance counselor in high school, and uh, he said, um, he said, Diane, you could... You, you do extremely well at school. You could do anything. So don't limit yourself. You should. I was the first person to go to university in my family. So he said, um, uh, make sure you take this, this, and this. And then here, uh, at that time, there wasn't a lot of online stuff, but he said, uh, I, I'm giving you some brochures for the University of Manitoba and University of Winnipeg. And I think, I'm telling you to go. I'm not asking if you want to go. I'm telling you to go. Yeah. And that person you know, really changed my life. So I would say overall, and maybe I just haven't been paying attention, but uh, I have felt extremely well treated by, by everybody, by men. Uh, and I've been given opportunities in this, in Canada, uh, that are, in my opinion, extraordinary. So, uh, I mean, there is, I did attend one meeting where somebody said they didn't feel women were that good at finance, and I... <laughs> I think I, I beg might. To differ. I might have gone off on that. <laughs> yeah, I bet you did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll have you know. Uh, so, yeah. um, I do feel. I mean, um, there are some impediments. There's no doubt. So, if women still are, for the most part, the primary child caring for kids, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, if you're going to try and become a member of parliament, that's going to be a pretty big challenge, especially if you're at the one end of the country and you're yeah. going to the other. So, um, the other thing, and this is one where I, you know, I did try and tackle it and did did okay in that area, was sometimes women have a more a greater amount of trouble fundraising for yeah. political life. And Politics is an expensive endeavor. So mm -hmm. if you're going to try and run in a local or um, or a federal election, you're probably going to have to raise 50, 60, 70 grand. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, and sometimes women don't necessarily have those financial networks that men have built up. Mm -hmm. So um, I, but I think things are changing now. Uh, you're seeing more and more women in political life and We've had a female mayor, and yeah. uh, and and so uh, I also think that people um, in political life benefit from diversity. So diversity of experience, uh, gender diversity, um, you know, uh, different backgrounds. Uh, I think it, it always makes us better when we have uh, a greater amount of diversity. But me personally, um, I have almost always been treated extremely well and feel that I had the same political opportunities that other people had. 
Okay, so the second one was the uh, the food security piece, and you mentioned that, and that's something you and I worked a fair bit together on. Yeah. And um, and so the yeah, I guess the passion for me certainly the passion for that touches back on something you talked about earlier is helping kids, right? And and I you know I I really share that passion with you. Kids don't really have a choice; they're in the family they're in, and however that is, and it, they don't have a choice in whether they can be there or not. And and if a kid doesn't have food, they can't learn. And the science is really strong on this. And if they can't learn, they can't get an education. And that leads to terrible outcomes. So, mm-hmm. so let's talk a bit about you know starfish and food security and stuff we did at CCS together on this and your passion for that and how you see that because you obviously have the educational background as well. Uh, so yeah, maybe to walk through that. Sure. Well, I think that uh, food security has always been an issue, but I think it's really been highlighted over COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course we're looking at this. Uh, you know, inflation is coming down, but food is still. Uh, a stubborn inflationary factor. I think the last one was 10%. Mm. So um, absolutely, um, uh, my own philosophy is um, sort of, you know, Pavlov's hierarchy of needs is you've got to start with basic needs, food, housing, which is another real priority of mine, and personal security. Those three kind of needs need to get met. So we know that... um, about 20% of kids in British Columbia are growing up in absolute poverty. So those kids are going to be impacted by not having uh, access to food and certainly not to healthy food. So, you know, yeah, you can have mac and cheese seven days a week, but what you need is balanced is a balanced diet. So the provision of that, and just to talk about uh, Chilliwack Community Services, but also Bowls of Hope. So the Starfish Backpack uh, provides uh, hundreds of kids every weekend with uh, food support, and then Bowls of Hope provides the lunches over the... um, over the over the week, I think in 23 schools. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's it's key. Um, it's key to this them just growing up properly. But also, teachers will tell you if kids are not properly fed, they can't learn. Yeah. So uh, the provision of that is really 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 important. I think the other thing is just around. Um, the capacity to grow your own food, uh, the whole issue around um, uh, community gardens, uh, growing your own food, um, and and just um, knowing how to prepare a meal. Um, you know, I've heard stories where you know some people, with respect to how they grew up, they would go to Seven Eleven and they or a gas station, and that's how they fed themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not you know that's not a balanced meal. That's not not a good meal. So, uh, so there's both the provision of it, and then there's the the growing of the skills around food, food production and food, um, and preparing food. Yeah. All right. Well, Dan, it's okay. been a fascinating, fascinating visit, and we'd like to thank you so much for joining the uh, Luke Bryan Show today. You bet. Thank you. Thank you and thank you for everything you do in the community, and uh, and uh, just so amazed at, uh, I, I actually don't know how you guys do it, so just, uh, I don't know, clone yourself, or maybe there's another Luke walking around somewhere, I don't <laughs> we better, know. We better hope not. <laughs> yeah. For all our sakes. Yeah, so thank you for everything you I do, and uh, you uh, make Chilliwack a better place. Well, that, that 
that's a, that's one thing I, I think just on the ending note, I and, and you're such a great person in the community and do so much, but I do think Chilak is just an incredible place where people give so much. Absolutely. And we were, in the prep for that, we were talking just a bit about how incredible Chilliwack is, and I, I do think it's people like you that make it so such a great place to be. So, so thanks again for coming on. And, uh, yeah, thanks. Take care. You're watching The Luke Bryan Show.